We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Any Which Way You Can on December 17th, 1980. It was written by Stanford Sherman, based on characters by Jeremy Joe Kronzberg, directed by Buddy Van Horn, and released by Warner Brothers. Writer Jeremy Joe Kronzberg wrote the script for the first installment, Every Which Way But Loose, as a vehicle for Burt Reynolds. It was turned down by nearly every studio and eventually landed in Eastwood's hands to pass along to Reynolds, but Eastwood liked it for himself to help broaden his appeal with the public. He roped Warner Brothers into greenlighting it. Eastwood was advised against starring in the film by his management, but on a $5 million budget, the film went on to gross $104 million. Nice. <laughs> And it's Burt Reynolds up. was like, well, now I got to do a movie with an animal. Yeah, he didn't He didn't care. Smokey and the Bandit 2, it's coming. Stat. I think that Clint Eastwood, the, I feel like the juxtaposition of Clint Eastwood based on his previous filmography in this movie is was, what sold it. Is what, what made it more appealing than it would have for Burt Reynolds because I yeah. think Burt Reynolds is, a, is less serious. Because people him to hang out with an ape. Yeah. It's follow-up any which way cost $15 million and grossed seventy diminishing returns but still a successful yeah uh a successful better film. than a lot of other movies that came out this year manis the orangutan that played clyde in the first film had aged out of the part and was replaced in this installment by two younger apes cj and buddha trigger warning here for people who are sensitive to animal abuse you might want to skip the next minute or so PETA has made numerous allegations of animal abuse against the keepers of the franchise, specifically alleging that on the set of the first film, Manus was sprayed with mace and beaten with an iron pipe to keep him docile, which sounds counterintuitive to me. They also allege that Buddha, one of the replacement apes from this film, was caught stealing donuts from the craft services table and in return was beaten with an axe handle until he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died. PETA has never presented any evidence for any of their allegations, and ordinarily I wouldn't trust them at all because they have a tendency to make up charges whole cloth, presuming the ends justify the means, but considering the animal abuse that wasn't even cut out of this film, I'm just going to assume that everybody's an asshole in this situation. This was Eastwood's second-to-last appearance alongside real-life girlfriend Sandra Locke. According to Sandra Locke's autobiography, to bulk up for his role in this film, Eastwood took mega doses of vitamins and ate lots of boiled potatoes. It definitely shows in the film, but I'm surprised nobody recommended just working out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Clint, maybe you want to hop on this bench press? No, nah, I'm going to take some pills and eat this huge tray of potatoes, thanks. <laughs> That's how I diet, too. <laughs> potatoes, they're full of... Uh... Full of vitamin muscle. <laughs> Nutriments. Yes, this is all muscle, Richard, right here. My baked potato. <laughs> These potatoes have all six essential nutrimites to fortify my X zone. <laughs> it's made with the power of seven different kinds of apples. <laughs> 
We open with aerial footage of a freeway in Los Angeles as Ray Charles and Clint Eastwood sing the film's theme, <laughs> Beers to You. When Uncle Sam called us up, we hit that eastern sand. Fought like hell for three long years in that South Asian land. We met a few foreign ladies. Mm-hmm. We drank a lot of lukewarm oh, beer. I remember. But tonight in this old Tucson bar. You know what? It's so damn good to see you here. Beers to you, old amigo. Our opening credits indicate that this will be our second film of the year with Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke, and Jeffrey Lewis, probably others. An 18-wheeler tailgates two motorcycle cops. He honks at them to get out of his way, and one of the cops threatens to impound his vehicle. I feel like I have your goddamn thing impounded. Sorry, officer. My hand slipped. A work truck fully loaded with lumber and day laborers drives alongside another motorcycle cop. One of the men riding on the outside of this truck waves a handful of cash and bets it all on Philo, Eastwood's character. The cop says, we'll see about that, and all these vehicles pull into a vacant lot outside some sort of processing plant. A huge crowd of half-civilians and half-police trade money as Philo and Orville, played by Jeffrey Lewis, show up in a pickup truck with an orangutan named Clyde. I think we decided... That they're not siblings? They're not brothers. Cause the, Even though the IMDb yeah, said that they were brothers. IMDb said they were, but I looked at, I just looked it up, and his last name, Orville's last name is Boggs, which is not the same as Beto? Be- Beto. 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 The names are so weird in this movie. Yeah. Philo Beto Philo and Orville Beto, Boggs. Um, yeah, it's weird. And Clyde. And Lynn Halsey-Taylor. That makes perfect sense. But there's actually another character from the first film, played by Beverly D'Angelo that doesn't come back for this one, but her character's name is Echo. And I feel like that's such a cool name and she's an awesome character in the movie, but for some reason she doesn't come back. There are thousands of dollars riding on this fight and a man named Joe is Philo's challenger. Apparently he's beaten up everyone in the Marines (laughs) or everyone in his division or whatever. Yeah. The cops seem to have put their money on Joe and one says that if he loses this fight that they'll be transferred to Death Valley because they're betting with their boss's money. In the ring, Philo lands a few solid punches while Orville smiles from the sidelines. Clyde wanders away from their truck onto one of the nearby 18-wheelers and then climbs down the other side to get into one of the parked police cruisers. Philo knocks Joe to the ground with a barrage of punches. A pair of cheering women on the sidelines distract Philo and the cameraman with their boobs, and Philo takes a fist to the face. With Joe sufficiently injured, Philo tries to call the fight over, and some of the cops on the sidelines argue that the fight's not over until he's down. Philo refuses to continue the fight if his challenger is in no condition to fight. Clyde, Philo, and Orville meet up at their truck, and just as they're leaving, one of the cops finds his police cruiser littered with apeshit. Philo realizes what Clyde did and says, Clyde, you got damn little respect for the law. Clyde blows a raspberry at him, and it gets all over Jeffrey Lewis's face, so he wipes the spit off the side <laughs> of his head. I'm, I am very impressed by the things they managed to get him to get Clyde to do. Yeah. Orville and Philo made $1,200 off this fight, but Philo says this was the last one since he's getting to like the pain, and that's dangerous. Philo asks Clyde to signal a right turn, and he throws his huge ape arm out of the passenger side window. The cops in the stinky ape shit car are following them, 
and complaining about their impending transfer to Death Valley. Clyde throws a banana peel out the window and it lands on the cop's windshield. The cop in the passenger seat says, we should pull them over for littering, but his sergeant tells him to shut up. I don't know why they don't do it, though. Just, just uh, pull them over, piss them off, get some revenge at least. Yeah. Littering and... <laughs> littering and smoking the reefer. No, just littering. We cut completely across the country to New York, where a group of men are exiting a limousine to enter an office building with a small metal box. As we enter the room crowded with rich dudes, the man holding the box raises a hand to indicate a $30,000 bet. The bet is accepted, and the man dumps the contents of his metal box into a small plexiglass cage in the middle of the room. It's a ferret, and the top... Is it a ferret or a mongoose? Um, They're actually the same thing. It's just a a uh, regional dialect. No, I have no idea. I thought it was a ferret, but a mongoose would make more sense because he's fighting a snake. Right. That's what Ricky Ticky Tavi does. That's Mm -hmm. true. The top is lifted off of a rattlesnake in the opposite corner of the box, and I already want to turn this movie off. There's no movie magic here. There's just two animals trying to kill each other. The fight ends quickly when the rattler bites the ferret slash mongoose. The man in charge, Beekman, sends his assistant to Tony Pauli Jr. to collect his winnings. Jr. promises the money by 5 p.m. I don't know why he doesn't just give it to him now. This doesn't really pay off at all. Yeah. Well, probably because he didn't expect to lose, so he didn't bring it with him. That's ballsy. Beekman asks one of his assistants if they have found a new fighter for Wilson. Evidently, Beekman has a boxer on contract for $5,000 a month, but everyone's too scared to fight him because he keeps killing people in the ring. Beekman's man has somehow heard of Philo through the grapevine and floats his name as an option. He says that people in the West who have lots of money to bet have heard of Philo and they like him. Why Why do they have to be from New York? I don't understand the... the, the the need why could they could this all could have been done in la and and overlook this i whole, guess people don't think of like organized crime in los angeles it's more of a new york thing but i really don't see that these guys are an organized crime this is more an underground fighting yeah maybe exotic fighting because it could have been vegas too yeah bring it closer because this whole like reoccurring thing of i've never heard of this guy who's this guy i've never heard of him it's just, maybe that's why they're so far away it's because they don't want him to know that philo's a better fighter mm. Beekman gives his man permission to set up the fight between Wilson and Philo. We cut to Anne and Logan Ramsey as Loretta and Luther Quince driving at night on a road trip. They've just arrived in California from Iowa for the first time in their marriage. I hear people here are a little peculiar. Loretta folks are just folks the world over. Suddenly Loretta sees Philo, Clyde, and Orville peeing on the side of the road. Luther. I think we should go back to Iowa. Philo, Orville, and Clyde stop at a roadside bar, and by sheer coincidence, Lynn Halsey-Taylor from the first film is here performing on stage. Mm -hmm. This happens two or three times in the first movie where they're just reunited with Lynn against all odds, and they never bother explaining it. It's mostly just bad screenwriting. Orville offers to leave, but Philo says, nah, it's fine. Lynn Halsey-Taylor is singing a song called There's One Too Many Women in Your Life, and the lyrics are worse than any of the songs in the first movie. I know it's wrong to want you, but God knows it feels so right. Just stay a little longer before you go to her tonight. There's one too many women. Didn't tell me she was here. I didn't know. We can go. I think Sandra Locke is doing her own singing here. Yeah, it because it, it has her voice. Like, yeah. Like, if someone's imitating her singing they're doing an amazing job right and if it wasn't her singing 
the person singing would probably be better. She's also singing with two other guys for most of the chorus, which was probably to mask the fact that she is not a singer. Mm-hmm. After her song, she takes a seat at the bar next to Philo and apologizes for how she left things, which makes me sad because of how awful Eastwood was to her in their real life, and he even gets to play the good guy in the movies. He asks her to leave, and she obliges, but Clyde blows a raspberry at Philo and then goes to join Lynn at the other end of the bar. Lynn tries to pave out that dumb plot hole by explaining that she heard somewhere that Philo hits this bar a lot and offered to sing for nothing so that she could talk to him the next time he came in. I'm surprised they're not charging her to sing, though, because it has to be driving some people out. (laughs) Clyde pounds the bar twice and is quickly given a beer by the bartender. Another bar patron asks the bartender to kick this orangutan out of his establishment and stands to throw the ape out himself until Clyde bends a bar rail in half to indicate his strength. The guy sits back down and orders another beer. The bartender's strangely cool with this. Yeah, he knows this. <laughs> like, ape. I'd be like, get out. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if I was cool with the ape coming in and drinking and ordering. Not bending the shit Yeah, out like, of the dude, bar. that's going to cost like 80 bucks to fix. Yeah, you just put it on uh, Philo's tab. Clyde tears an aluminum can in half and dumps a beer down his throat. Or, it's dangerous. Yeah, it does look dangerous. He's got it all around his lips and everything. Orville comes over to collect Clyde, and he warns Lynn against bothering them. He tells them how messed up Philo was when they split last time, and she says, I was messed up too. I feel like we're right back in Smokey and the Bandit 2 again, but yeah. the elephant turned into an ape. Clyde moves back toward the angry customer and pulls a cigarette out of his mouth to give him a big kiss before Orville leads Clyde away. The man turns back to the bartender and says, Kind of grows on you, doesn't he? I like the impression that this guy actually enjoyed the kiss. Yeah. Like he's like, I think I'm falling in love with this ape. There's a lot of superfluous footage of the band on stage. I'm assuming this is just a band that Eastwood liked and promised screen time to. Well, I mean, because like Fats Domino. Yeah, most of them are famous musicians, but it's like not relevant to the plot. And we keep cutting back. There's no reason for this unless they're names. Right. And the opening song with Ray Charles, although Ray Charles does not appear in the film. Right. uh, Is just like. I don't know, everyone just wants to work with Clint Eastwood, I guess. It's also funny to hear this song with Clint Eastwood and Ray Charles singing back and forth to each other. And and it's like about the two of them spying on women at Mm -hmm. a bar. But Ray Charles can't see the women. (laughs) It doesn't make (laughs) sense. But it also, it feels like there's no way that the two of them have ever hung out (laughs) or would ever even talk to each other. I think it's just uh, Eastwood wanted someone famous to sing with. Because he did the same thing in Bronco Billy earlier this year. We cut to a crappy looking house full of Nazi bikers. This gang of bikers was in the first film and they're still mad about Philo constantly embarrassing them there. The leader of the group, Chola, played by John Quaid, is giving them a speech to rile them up and go out fighting. But one of them suddenly remembers that his brownies are burning and rushes to the kitchen. This whole gang, Chola and the guys, remind me of Yondu and his The Ravagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And even in so much as in the first film they're just bad guys and then in the second film they kind of like turn to liking the hero a little bit um which is funny but they follow the same pattern but more nazi but more nazis i don't know what the ravagers thought about world war ii maybe yondu was a nazi is what i'm saying (laughs) chola asks the lord why he was cursed with these men and i really wanted this joke to end with him saying why do they always burn the brownies (laughs) why me lord I mean, you made other men out of clay. Mine, you made out of shit. 
When Ma finds out that Philo has quit fighting, she tries to guilt him back into that life because she can't afford her house or food or medicine without that income. She chases Clyde when he comes out of the house holding all of her Oreos, which is a reference to a joke in the first film, where Clyde eats all of her Oreos. Philo is working on his truck when he's visited by a representative of the East Coast Fighting Ring. He says he's looking for Philo Beto, and Philo says, you're talking to him. I'm talking to his feet. Well, the top half of him can hear you. The man explains why he's here. Philo informs the man that he's retired from Fight Club until the man offers him a sum of $15,000. Philo rolls himself out from under the car, and the man says, do you know who Jack Wilson is? And he says, yeah, I've heard of him. And he says, okay, $25,000. Money will be payable win or lose. Here's $10,000 in advance. Philo tells the man to give the $10,000 to his manager, Clyde, and the guy is freaked out when his manager is an ape. We get a quick moment from Orville in the truck at night, and he's listening to a local CB broadcast. Someone is paging a tow truck that there's a car in need of a new battery, and Orville seems to have a business model of intercepting these calls uh, for tow truck companies. Yeah, but he's not intercepting them to, like, get the tow and tow it to where it needs. They're, they're finding cars that are abandoned right. in order to scrap them for parts. Yes, but uh, the guy, the tow truck driver calls in and says he'll be there in 20 minutes, and he says, 20 minutes? You're too late by half, Harry. He slaps a sticker or probably a magnet for the tow service responding to the call on both sides of his truck before heading out. It reminds me of a skit from the original Tom Green show called Undercutters, where he would wait outside of a house when a person ordered pizza, and then he would race up to the door and beat the delivery driver to the door Mm -hmm. of the house, and uh, he would have a blank cheese pizza and then a tackle box full of toppings, and he'd be like, what did you order? What did you order? And like try and put the pizza together there on the porch, and... uh, Obviously, he, he almost got punched by the homeowners and the delivery people. I still remember the, the theme song went, da, 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 undercutters. Philo is looking for Clyde and finds his mother sifting through the junk in the shed. Clearly, she's looking for this wad of cash she saw a man give to the ape earlier, but she pretends that she's just tidying up because she cares so much about Philo and Clyde. We cut back to that honky-tonk bar where Sandra Locke is on stage again, and it feels like she had something written into her contract that guarantees her a song per scene. This song is about the Wheel of Fortune, and it's probably even worse than the first song. Right now I'm feeling like I've had enough. If I've been all wrong, instead of all right, maybe your love's too loose, or mine is too tight. When the Wheel of Fortune spins again, I plan to Turns out this time Philo and Lynn were brought together because his pet orangutan walked the whole way to this bar specifically to reunite them or maybe just by coincidence. When the song mercifully ends, she takes a seat at the table (laughs) and Philo and Lynn have a conversation. Again, the characters are forced to guess at the plot because the script doesn't follow any sort of logic. It's supposed to be uh, out like this. What did I do? I was just singing a number and he came in and sat down. Probably got lost and recognized this place. This is bad writing. Yeah. yeah. Give an explanation or have it be obvious that he led him here on purpose. He asks if she has a car, and amazingly she happens not to have a car, and just walks here every <laughs> night to sing one song, and it always happens to be minutes before he walks in. I really wanted there to be a joke of, it's like, I had a car, but uh, I had a car trouble and my, my car for a tow died. truck. <laughs> the tow truck came with the car away. <laughs> yeah, that would have been funny. 
That's why it's not in here. Philo offers her a ride home and she accepts. He drops her off uneventfully at the local YWCA. On his way home from dropping her off, the Black Widow gang, that's the name of the bikers, they see Philo's truck and they give chase. They catch up to Philo at a light and start harassing him through the passenger side window. Once they start making threats against Clyde, Philo says, Right turn, Clyde. Which is Clyde's cue to stick his arm out the window. And because of their positioning, this causes Clyde to punch out Chola, who then tips over and knocks all the other bikes over Domino style. Philo heads back to the building where Lynn lives. He moves inside and asks the woman at the desk what her apartment number is. And for some reason, the woman tells him yeah. before insisting he's not allowed upstairs. The warning is repeated by a few women on the second floor. Hey, wait a minute. Excuse me, ma'am. I didn't see a thing. Hardly. You aren't allowed up here. As he passes them, and then he knocks on Lynn's door. Once she lets him into the room, she says, You're not allowed up here. Well, it must be true. You're the third person who's told me that. He invites her to come stay at his house, where evidently they have an extra room. She doesn't want a handout from him, and he says he's a friend, and this isn't a handout, it's a hand up. The woman in the lobby called the police when Philo headed upstairs, and when they knock on Lynn's door, she pretends to be here alone so the cops will go away. The cops then tell the women in the hallway that they just imagined the man walking yeah, through the second right. floor of the building. All of them were standing there. They clearly would have seen him walk into that room. Yeah. <laughs> and why do they need to make a sneaky exit out? I don't know. So he's not arrested? But, okay, so they, they, but they successfully hide from the cops... And then just immediately go out while the cops are still walking around. Yeah. Some of them think that it's possible that they imagined him because all they do is think about men all day. And one of them, who was brushing her teeth, starts making out with the cops because she can't help herself to show what a bad writer of female character Stanford Sherman is. (laughs) Philo and Lynn sneak down the fire escape and she loads her stuff into the truck to come home with Philo. The cops notice Philo pulling his truck out of the alley with Clyde and Lynn in the truck. And for some reason, one of the cops says, it's them. And they jump in their car to follow him. Yeah. It's like, who? Who It's them? just a guy outside getting into his truck. You have no idea if this is the same guy that was. You just convinced them that they didn't even see a guy. Mm-hmm. They jump into their car to follow Philo, but they give up immediately because it turns out that Clyde shit in this car too. So the driver sits in a bunch of orangutan stank. At home, Philo lets Lynn take his bed, and he sets up a sleeping bag for himself and Clyde to share in the shed. Lynn sneaks into the shed to speak with Philo in the middle of the night, and they kiss. In the morning, we see that Lynn and Philo stupidly slept on the floor of this shed instead of in the actual bed, like a pair of dum-dums. And more than likely <laughs> just had sex in front of Clyde. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's and, not interested in human sex. Uh, Clyde! Watch, watch, watch what we're doing. Look at Sorry, look at. sorry, I lost it. <laughs> Clyde won't watch us. I can't do it if he's not watching. <laughs> oh God! Clyde notices a newspaper article. <laughs> it changes the whole movie that he's just got this kink that he likes an orangutan watching yeah. him. That's why he has him as a yeah. pet. <laughs> it's very specific. He's an he's an apist. <laughs> Clyde notices a newspaper article about an orangutan named Bonnie at the Bakersfield Zoo and whistles at the picture or tries to, I guess. He's about as good as Tess was when she first started. <laughs> Clyde steps out of the shed and the door slamming wakes up Philo and Lynn. For some reason, neither of them is worried about the ape who, according to the screenplay, got confused and wandered blocks away to a local bar last night because he doesn't know directions to his house. They they let him do whatever, though. Yeah. Like, I mean, this isn't this isn't new. He just he can but go if he, if anytime he's a he pleases. Free roaming ape 
then he should know his neighborhood. Why did he go to this random bar just to to leave the two characters together? To get them back together. Why does he care about that? He has no vested interest in their relationship. In fact, it's costing him time with his man friend. No, maybe he does like to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And he's he's being coy? (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. We get a little montage of Clyde's antics outside. He throws a basketball through a hoop. He destroys a hammock. He drinks out of a hose. He falls out of a rocking chair. Orville tells Philo that someone offered money if they can strip a Mercedes that he towed. And Philo puts Clyde in charge of disassembling the vehicle. And he does it in like two or three minutes, just ripping panels off and frisbeeing them through the air. Isn't the point of stripping that you, that you could use the parts? Yeah. No, you throw them as far as you can. You, That's you, the you point. bend them and destroy them. Philo jogs around the neighborhood and suddenly is joined by a strange man. The man doesn't introduce himself, but he and Philo run side by side for like five miles, eventually jogging through a construction site where the man almost falls off a cliff and Philo is forced to save him. We just cut to the next scene without ever bothering to hint at who this guy was. I mean, it seems clear. Yeah, I think it seems very clear. But I like, I like that you say that Philo is forced to help him yeah. up. He's like, just like, this I, is a waste I, of his time. <laughs> you think he wanted to? You think he was already friends with this guy? No, I think I think they both know who each other are, and they get that they're trying to trick each other, but it's not working. Yeah. But imagine if he had just let the guy die here, and then the people come back and they're like, hey, can we get that $10,000 back? The guy you're supposed to fight fell off a cliff, <laughs> like two blocks that way, weirdly. Last time he was seen was jogging with you, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Orville did a little research and tells Philo that the guy that he's supposed to fight killed two men in the ring last year. Philo corrects him that only one actually died. The other one's in a hospital somewhere. Back at the honky-tonk, thank you. So right there where it says thank you in my notes, it's because I had talked to text on and one of the guys in this bar said, why don't you get somebody who can sing around here? And I appreciated it so much <laughs> that I said thank you out loud and my computer saved the note. <laughs> she's literally walking past the guy too when he says this. <laughs> like she just came off stage and she's a foot away from him when he says, Why don't you get somebody who can sing around here? For some reason, <laughs> Philo's new, not at all suspicious friend who is still hanging out with them yeah. is the most offended by this line. And he tells the man, That's not polite. So the man stands and punches him out before Philo comes to this random stranger's defense. The new friend's eyes widen as he watches Philo take on this whole table of assholes. One of them pulls a knife and new friend breaks his arm before he can bury it in Philo's side. Suddenly, new friend is taking out the whole rest of the table. With all the bad guys down, Philo asks new guy if he learned what he was looking for. And he says, yeah. You're fast and you like pain. You eat it like candy. I'm realizing now that Lynn just snuck off when this fight started and never came back. Yeah. (laughs) New friend says they're even. He repaid being pulled up the cliff face by stopping this knife wielder. That's probably Jack Wilson, but never says so. He does, however, recommend that they call off the fight since there's no point to it. Before he leaves, a moment hangs in the air between them, but they decide against kissing and part ways. Back at home, Philo carries a plastic engine block across the yard like it's heavy. Suddenly, Lynn and Ma come out in rapid succession and try to talk him out of this fight. Even though Ma was just accusing him of right. like quitting fighting and that that would be a bad idea. But Philo earlier, when Orville was saying, this guy kills people, he said, don't tell Ma about this. Don't tell Lynn about this, please. And it turns out he's told both of them because he thought that they would have more influence over his decision. 
Even Clyde doesn't want him to fight. And that's when Philo decides that he's not going to do it. He only cares what the ape thinks. He doesn't care what his girlfriend or mother think. Well, he can always get a new girlfriend. Yeah. You know how hard it is to get an ape that wants to watch? It's not very hard. <laughs> Apparently, judging from this film. That's what, that's what he says when the ape's not watching. Yeah. It's not very hard. Go get the ape. He tells Orville to call the gangster back to collect his $10,000. Ma follows Clyde to see where the ape hid the money and is furious to find it under her own mattress. Under my own mattress. Humiliating. Outsmarted by a banana head. Apparently, instead of just talking him back into the fight, Beekman's goon got on a plane and flew five hours to this house to collect this money just to say, I refuse to collect this money. You're still going to fight. He should have just said, no, we paid you. You have to fight. He tells Philo that when he shows up for the fight, he'll get this money back and 15000 more. And if he doesn't show up to the fight, then what they do will be much worse than what Jack Wilson does to him. Before the man can even get in his Cadillac, Philo tells Clyde to scrap it. And the man desperately tries to get it started as Philo's tearing panels off. Also the driver's side door. This sequence goes on just long enough to be four times longer than it needed to be. <laughs> we cut back to Philo cringing at the sound effects of the car being demolished like six times. I'm betting you somewhere at the Warner Brothers lot they have like 40 takes of Clint Eastwood going, yeah. <sighs> <sighs> listening to this car get destroyed. Somehow the man is able to hotwire the car and drives it away all fucked up like that. I'm reminded again of Smokey and the Bandit 2 when they're driving this car folded completely into a 30 degree angle down yeah. the road covered in seaweed philo invites orville to head up to bakersfield for some fun which seems like a contradiction in terms what are they going to do start a fight at the crystal palace turns out he's fulfilled his plot device of not wanting philo to fight his new character motivation is that he's jealous of all the time that philo spends with lynn which from what we've seen in the movie is not very much time outside of the bar since orville turned him down he takes clyde to bakersfield with him the motorcycle gang is watching from across the street and follows them as well. Somewhere in North Hollywood, the biker gang is chasing Philo through the streets. He makes a last second turn before a truck dumping asphalt, and he throws up enough dust that the bikers don't see it coming until it's too late. Philo swerves away from it, and all the bikers go right through this scalding hot asphalt. The bikers continue until they have Philo cornered, but the asphalt that's completely coating them is hardening quickly and suddenly they're all frozen in place unable to fight him now correct me if i'm wrong but this like shower line of like asphalt coming out like i think those machines exist but they're not like five six feet in the air no, they're, they're usually right, right up, above they're the right above the right. ground like they're a few inches off the ground as they spray asphalt so what is this doing like this six is, feet in the air it's an experimental one they were testing a new <laughs> thing and it didn't work out and and i feel like this whole gag of hardening concrete-esque asphalt would would be funnier if it was just concrete like just just have them like hit a cement truck or something yeah. like that and get it dumped on them in some kind of way like because i'm sure while i'm sure asphalt hardens I think I feel like the liquid hotness of it would would have most of it would have dripped off of them. Yeah, but I also think that it plays into another change for the rest of the story. Yeah. Mm. That, that asphalt or that concrete wouldn't have made as much sense. But as they harden completely into statues, one by one they start falling over, unable to catch themselves. Philo says he can't just leave them here like this. So we cut to the last of the bikers, Chola, being lowered by like a crane truck in a hospital courtyard 
and they tell him that they're going to get him and he says well yeah you guys owe me forty dollars because i had to rent this truck which is crazy cheap for the truck no it's his truck he had to rent the crane that's what i mean he had to rent the the crane for the truck but forty dollars seems crazy cheap for this piece of equipment maybe not i don't know your home depot day rentals they're reasonable he asks the doctor be able to get this stuff off sure We'll just peel them like bananas. Of course, that tar will take most of the hair off with it. Painful? Moderately. We cut right to the Bakersfield Zoo at night. I'm assuming the plan was always to break in after hours, so why did they leave at like 2 in the afternoon if Bakersfield is only 3 hours away? Either way, they're at the zoo now, outside of the orangutan enclosure. Apparently Philo is coaching Clyde on how to date rape this other orangutan. He gives him a banana stuffed with pills to start with, and if that doesn't work, he gives the ape a full syringe of some sort of sedative. Now, if that doesn't work, just pop her in the ass and squeeze the ball. Got that? Clyde immediately injects himself in the leg and passes out. Philo makes fun of Clyde like he's the idiot and not the dude that just gave a loaded syringe of Thorazine to a fucking ape. <laughs> Philo drags Clyde's corpse out to the truck. He's not, he's not dead. Uh, he drags Clyde out to the truck and then heads back into the zoo to ape-nap one of the orangutans at random. Hopefully the girl. <laughs> he's going to have to check. Yeah. No, he said, like, I, I'm going to grab one of you. I hope it's the right one. Back at home, Ma is reading the newspaper at the kitchen table when she's introduced to Beekman's World of Pain. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for a Beekman's yeah. World joke to come in. <laughs> By which I mean a bunch of Beekman's dudes kick in the door and start roughhousing the place. With a loaded gun to Orville's head... Ma finally admits that Philo went to Bakersfield, and the men knock Orville out and leave. Ma steals Orville's keys to follow them. Can I just say how annoying it is that all these characters have such weird names? Philo, Orville, and Clyde, even after typing them out a couple dozen times each, I keep forgetting everyone's names constantly because they're so weird. Ma steals Orville's truck, even though it's currently towing a Volkswagen bug. Philo, Lynn, and Clyde, and his new ape, pull up to the Pink Cloud Inn in Bakersfield. The manager of the motel thinks he's seeing things because on his small television, he's watching a show about apes. He changes the channel to find King Kong and then some weird ape cartoon. Ma is still driving up here and the bug has been falling apart the whole time. She's been dragging it on the freeway because it's not attached properly. We keep cutting back and forth and every time they cut back to her, less and less of the car is still attached. Yeah. So now the back tires are gone and it's throwing sparks all over every lane of traffic as she drives. Philo leaves the apes in a hotel room alone together, expecting what, I don't know, is this like a conjugal visit for Clyde? Yeah. Yes. We cut to the room next door where Loretta and Luther Quince are laying in a bed and disturbed by the rhythmic thumping against the wall of their motel room. Lynn, in her room, demands some sort of courtship ritual from Philo before she agrees to anything in their room. Philo jumps up to hang from the room's chandelier like a monkey. I'm impressed. (laughs) Was it all both of us? I'm impressed it was able to hold one of them. (laughs) Yeah. In the ape's room, Clyde is just disassembling furniture and throwing it at the walls. Anne Ramsey in the room next door still thinks that the sounds coming from the ape room are obscene and starts packing to leave when her husband catches sight of her butt and starts approaching her making animal sounds. He lifts a chair to throw it, but throws out his back in the process. We get a montage of the three females in their beds lifting one arm to reach out for their mates. 
Clyde does a clumsy somersault over his new girlfriend. And I really wanted to cut to Logan Ramsey doing the same thing over yeah. Anne in bed, but that doesn't happen. The three couples begin making out and we cut to the dwindling remains of the Volkswagen being dragged down the main street in Bakersfield. There are still no police pursuing her, which seems impossible after this three hour drive. Orville comes to at home and remembers that everyone's headed to Bakersfield. He hops in one of the cars he's towed and gets on the road. By the time Ma gets parked at the Cloud Inn, all that's left dangling from the tow truck is the bumper and front wheels of the Volkswagen. She catches the motel owner peeking through a window of the ape room and reprimands him, only to find him hypnotized by the same bizarre spell that has affected everyone staying in these rooms. She kicks him in the balls and then punches him in the face, which is, strangely enough, exactly the fighting advice she gave to her grandson earlier this year in My Bodyguard, though in mm. reverse order. You right for the eye, see? Hit him hard as you can. Blind him. Takes the fight right out of him. Mother, I don't think that blinding fists is the answer to this problem. Well, then, kick him in the cojones. That's the thing. She immediately regrets beating up this old man and helps him to stand, inviting him to peek into this hotel room for as long as he needs to get excited and then come meet her in the motel office. Told you, it's all about having the ape around. <laughs> I assume that this was a lie so that she could steal a room key or something, but it turns out that when he finds her, she's just in there talking to God about how she hopes that she can still have sex with this guy that owns the motel. It's very weird that she was she drove all this way to save her son, and then at the last second she's like, wait, I could have sex with this guy. At this Priorities. point, at this point, the plot of the movie of he needs to fight a guy hasn't even like become yeah, an issue for like the last even 15 matter. minutes. Suddenly, the motel owner is fantasizing a scene from the movie Ten as Bo Derek runs along the beach, and he replaces the Dudley Moore character. But when we cut back to Bo Derek, Ruth Gordon's face has been comped over Bo Derek's face. <laughs> what the fuck is going on in this movie? <laughs> Apparently, Ma has just given up on rescuing her son, and now they're going to have sex. Orville asks a pair of police officers where the Pink Cloud Motel is, and they give him directions. Then he says, well, how would you and your girlfriend like to race me there? This is the most concise way that Orville can think of to bring cops to a location where he thinks his friend might be getting murdered. Now, Philo's truck, Orville's tow truck, the Mafia's black limousine, and Orville's stolen car along with several police cruisers, are all pulling into the same parking lot. Orville crashes into Logan and Ann Ramsey's car and is quickly arrested by the officers chasing him. Philo steps out of his door to see what all the fuss is and notices the limousine pulling around the corner. Orville shouts, 4th Street Station, to Philo, indicating where he needs to be bailed out in the morning. Luther Quince steps out of the room and notices their car has been rear-ended in the parking lot and tells his wife as much. We can always get a new car, honey. Come back to bed. The next morning, Philo is loading a gun on the way to the Bakersfield Zoo to return the ape they stole. He instructs his idiot ape pet, Clyde, to bring his girlfriend back to her enclosure and then come out. He notices the limousine parking near them and grabs the gun. He gets the drop on a pair of Beekman's goons and forces them to toss their handguns to the ground, but when he marches them back to his truck, he finds a third goon has a gun to Lynn's head. They leave Philo on the ground and put a couple holes in the truck to disable it. 
At least I think that was their plan. In reality, they had left him unconscious near a truck that was about to catch fire and potentially explode, costing them whatever money they intended to win in this fight. Clyde finds him there and drags him away from the flaming truck before it explodes, but when it does, we realize Philo probably would have been fine. The explosion just goes straight up from the truck. Yeah, but still. Philo, Ma, and Orville take the five back to Los Angeles. Oh, Clyde is there too. Clyde, the, Both apes are in the back of the truck. I assumed they were just taking this ape for a spin for the night, Yeah, but they kept it. So they put it in the back of the pickup truck and drove back to LA with it. But the ape belongs in Bakersfield. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> no, that's not right. A zoo. a zoo is like a museum. <laughs> Since they connected with her, Ma has been smiling strangely but hasn't said a word. Orville worries out loud that she may be getting senile. He thinks her brain's going soft. Jelly, Sonny. Jelly. Jelly Roll killed my mama. Drove my daddy stone blind. She tells both of the boys that they're going to church next Sunday because God answered her prayers for Dick. Back at home, Philo gets a phone call from the baddies. Yeah, and by the way, Philo's just outside working on engines. Yeah, he's like, not, he's like, not just doing like, anything to get his girlfriend back. Yeah, he's just back to business as usual. I mean, I know there's not much he can do, but you'd think like, I don't know, something. I, I feel like if this actually happened to Clint Eastwood, what he would do is he would go home and work on his car some more. I feel like he's, <laughs> he's a method actor. But he answers the phone and he hears the words, Jackson, Wyoming, Saturday noon. Not until I talk to her. You are in no position to set conditions, friend. You heard me. I really wanted the dude to just hang up here because he's right. Philo has no leverage and would definitely show up to Jackson. Mm -hmm. The men agree to return Lynn to Philo before the fight at noon, which completely defeats the whole purpose of having a hostage if you can't make him fight. It would be like if right before the fight in the big brawl, they just gave his uncle back mm -hmm. and were like, here you go. Now go fight pretty please. Go through with the fight you didn't want to do. We cut to the motorcycle gang, now completely bald, sifting through a pile of wigs they bought. It's a complete grab bag. Some of them are lady wigs. Some of them are clown wigs. Some of them are dreadlocks. Philo, Clyde, and Orville drive the pickup truck the whole way to Wyoming. Somehow the bikers got wind of this and they're following him in their ridiculous wigs. They're speeding and immediately get pulled over by the cops who can't keep a straight face when they see the wigs. They're even let go without the tickets because they look so ridiculous. But Chola is demanding that he give them tickets because yeah. they broke the law because he doesn't like that they're laughing at him. I'm really enjoying that Chola's shirt has a circle cut out of the front so you can still see his Black Widow tattoo yeah. through the window in the front of his shirt. He just cut a circle because he's like, well, people don't know that I sat through a tattoo session. I've got to show it off. As the cops pull away, Chola launches into an angry monologue that gets all echoey and surreal. Lord, you have given me these crosses to bear and I will carry them all the way from Jerusalem to Jackson, whichever's closer. But hear me, Lord. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will chew on Philo Beto's ass for my last supper. We cut to a hotel in Jackson where Barry Corbin, as Zach, is hosting what looks to be some kind of swinger party or orgy. He gets a phone call from Beekman laying out the schedule for an event on Saturday. He tells him Philo Beto and Jack Wilson will be fighting, but Zach seems never to have heard of Philo Beto. He asks one of his partygoers what the odds are for Philo versus Jack and eventually tells Beekman he'll be there for the fight. One of the swingers in this room is sitting on an enormous rocking horse and it's the closest thing we'll get to a mechanical bull 
for our third and final Barry Corbin film <laughs> of the year. I don't really understand the odds they're throwing back and forth, but Beekman's assistant wants him to do one thing, and then Beekman is certain Wilson will win and instead wants to do something else. To bet all of their money on Wilson, even though the odds seem to be favoring Beto in this fight. I think the I think the odds still favor Wilson, but not by much. I can't tell. They, they throw so many numbers back and they forth. Do. We see Jack Wilson arrive at his fancy hotel, and then Philo checks into his shitty one. It looks like animals aren't allowed at Philo's hotel. So they're pretending that Clyde is his great aunt or some shit. They put the ape in a dress. It's dumb. We see a couple of luggage throwers on a tarmac talking about the upcoming fight when they notice a private jet flying upside down over the airport. Inside the jet, we see Barry Corbin is letting his female companion pilot the plane, which is why it's upside down. All the passengers are also upside down and laughing hysterically about it while they practice drinking champagne out of an upside down bottle. But she also says something like, we've been driving or we've been flying like this for 15 minutes. Yes. It's like some of you would be unconscious by now if that were true. Philo sees a limousine pull into a parking lot, but it's a completely different color than any of the limousines we've seen so far. Nevertheless, he reels up a punch for the passenger when he notices that it's two old ladies who came here to bet on the fight. They're worried that he looks too healthy and that they won't be able to win anyone's money because it's obvious that Philo will win. Try to look a little more peaked. Philo continues jogging down the street when he notices another car seemingly pursuing him. Again, he winds up a punch and puts it through the driver's side window before thinking to look through the transparent window to see that these are not the people who took his <laughs> girlfriend. It's Barry Corbin, and he's very pissed off at Philo, not for punching the window and breaking it, but for potentially hurting his hand. It sounds like Barry Corbin as this Zack character is putting all of his money on Philo. No booze, no parties, in bed by 8 o'clock. You can count on that. Suddenly, Philo and Jack Wilson are jogging together again, and everyone in town is very excited to see this. It looks like literally everyone in this whole town has money on the fight. There's a phone call to Beekman's room, and it's Tony Paolo here to see Beekman. Beekman assumes it's Junior who lost the fight by betting $30,000 on a bad mongoose earlier, but his assistant corrects him that this is Senior, not Junior. Big Tony? Big Tony! What was he coming here for? Big Tony enters and explains that when he heard about the huge wager that Beekman was making, with no layoff, he decided to get in on the bet and wants to put a million dollars on the fight. I don't understand layoff. I don't either. I don't know what he means by that. I don't understand any of those gambling terms. But I'm also still not sure if this guy, I, I guess this guy's betting on Philo, even though he heard that his employee is making a huge bet on Wilson. Mm-hmm senior is here big tony is here to bet a million dollars on philo in the middle of the night great aunt hortense aka clyde sneaks out of their hotel room the motel owner is reading a playboy magazine with dorothy stratton on the cover who we had earlier this year as the title character of galaxina when he notices clyde coming out of their room he moves outside and opens his robe to flash the ape who flashes him back when the motel owner realizes this is not a human he throws philo out the following morning why did they bring the ape again why is it in this movie? It really hasn't been relevant at all this time. I think it's just supposed to be like a comical th- concept. Like we have this other character, who's, yeah. but just happens to be an ape. But it's not like the elephant where the whole point of the movie was moving it from mm-hmm. Florida to Texas. No, it's it's a character. Yeah. Are you saying Charlotte wasn't a character? No. Elephantist. 
Jack meets with Philo and Orville and Clyde and tells them that he figured out where they're keeping Lynn. They head straight there. Well, yeah. Uh, well, we uh, did we mention that Philo and Jack talked about Lynn? Like, oh, while they were jogging. Yeah. yeah Philo, Philo had mentioned that the guys Jack is working for have Lynn as a hostage, and Jack says, "I didn't know that." Right. I, I don't know what these guys do. Uh, and he just fights for money. That's all he. Does. That's right. But he figured out where they're keeping Lynn, and they head straight there. When the men come out of a hotel with Lynn, Orville grabs her, and Jack and Philo take turns beating up the rest of the group. One of the men shoots Orville in the shoulder during this skirmish, and then another levels a handgun at Jack Wilson until Philo shouts, Right turn, Clyde! again, and he punches the gunman out of the car. Philo lifts Orville to get him to an ambulance as quickly as possible, and he tells Lynn to call the police on the rest of these guys. Jack Wilson says, no, police weren't a part of this deal. I'll handle these guys myself. He tells them, since he just saved their ass, that they owe him one. And he tells them to drive west until they see the surf. This is dumb because they would obviously be more scared of the mafia than they are of Jack Wilson. And they're not going to disobey a direct order like that. More likely one of them would just shoot him here with another gun they have stashed somewhere. After all of this disagreement, and even though they already have Lynn back, Philo still hasn't decided if he's going to go through with the fight. Yeah. At this point, it depends on if Jack wants to go through with it, because if only one person shows up, then he's the automatic winner, and Philo doesn't want the poorer people to lose money just because he didn't show up. It looks a lot like the fight is canceled, and everyone's leaving their hotel rooms. People are complaining out loud about how much money they spent getting here. It's still gnawing at Philo and Jack, not knowing for certain which one of them would have won the fight, so they decide to have a fight in secret at a barn on the edge of town. Well, they canceled the fight because they, they both decided not to show up. Right, exactly. So, Because, yeah, if neither shows up, then it's not a forfeit. By then all bets one. are off. Yeah. yeah. Which Beekman's assistant is excited to hear because he thinks they've been taking some stupid risks. Right. But Beekman is mad because so much work and money went into just getting the event together. But it's still better than losing all this money on the fight. Right, because he would have had to pay $3 million if Philo wins. But they start this fight in this barn and a couple of neighborhood kids stumble upon it and then bring it to the attention of some police. And then suddenly the whole town knows that this fight is back on. Uh, word is traveling by CB radio and telephone. Everyone's hanging U-turns and flying back to town. Uh, <laughs> Barry Corbin's plane is on the tarmac and he decides to just drive it out of the airport and back to town. Yeah, he, he's driving this plane, which would be like sucking people up into the engine as yeah. they were getting too close. The next shot is another confusing moment. All the biker gang are on foot now, and they're running through town in Jackson, Wyoming. Second in command of the bikers asks Chola why they're on foot now when they had motorcycles in the last scene, and Chola says, I told you, the cops chase the bikes! Is this the best the screenwriter could do to explain why they don't have bikes? Yeah. How could 40 bikes have disappeared so discreetly? Well, and well, they do explain it. They explain it, but there's no way that these other bikers wouldn't notice. They were they were sitting on a motorcycle, and then the motorcycle just wasn't under them yeah. anymore. Everybody watches through the windows of this barn as the fight rages on inside until Philo and Jack come crashing out of a wall like Kool-Aid men. We see Main Street and Jackson, and people are on foot. Eventually, Barry Corbin's private jet is just rolling down Main Street. Despite the film being directed by a stunt coordinator, all the fight scenes seem to be really awful. And every punch that Clint Eastwood throws is seen as a POV from the person getting hit. It's always directly into camera. And they're using the same three punch sound effects for every punch in the entire movie. It's actually really boring. Yeah. And like 
the only thing that's entertaining about this whole fight is the people watching it, not the fight itself. Beekman seems to think that Philo is winning and instructs his men to shoot Philo in the middle of this fight as though any of the bets would pay off if that happened. Yeah, that seems like, it's like, oh, you know, it must have been a stray bullet. Yeah, this isn't the visitor universe. You don't win because the basketball exploded at the end of the game. Chola sees that they plan to kill Philo and he tells his men that they have to prevent it. His guys don't understand until Chola comes clean and admits that the police didn't take the motorcycles. He sold all of them. He, he sold every single motorcycle mm-hmm. in secret. And bet it on Philo. And bet all the money on Philo to win because Philo always wins. Chola and his men in their ridiculous wigs go beat up all of Beekman's foot soldiers. One of them is dropped over a balcony through the windshield of a parked car. And is dead. Yeah. There's just, he's not he's moving. Dead. He's bleeding. He's dead. Philo and Jack take a short break and it looks like they make call the fight for Philo. A beer is handed to them from the crowd and they share it. When Jack points out that there's no way that he'll let this fight end without a clear winner, Philo suddenly sucker punches him and the fight is back on. Philo throws Jack through a window into a restaurant, another thing that happened in the movie The Visitor. The fight tumbles into the restaurant kitchen where Philo's arm is quickly broken. Jack tries to end the fight here, but Philo won't let it end and the fight crashes out the back door of the restaurant and continues into the street again. Philo punches Jack a hundred times with his good fist and jack doesn't block a single punch because he's an idiot finally philo lays jack out in the park and when jack comes to he admits the fight is over he was unconscious for a second that means this is the end of the fight beekman realizes that he's lost this bet and he now owes millions of dollars to people he and the assistant decide to skip town now in this next shot i think this is what's happening a man brings a briefcase full of money to big tony who had bet on philo Mm -hmm. and he says Beekman is paying out 30 cents for every dollar he owes because he doesn't have enough to cover all the bets. Right. But Big Tony is being given 40 cents on the dollar, which is more than anyone else is getting, in exchange for not being murdered. (laughs) And Big Tony says, great, you promised him that you wouldn't kill him? And he's like, yes, I did. And he's like, awesome. Now go kill him. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, he gives you this stuff. So you promise you don't murder him. Great. Go murder him. Yeah. Because I think he's just happy that the guy said, okay, I'm glad you promised because that meant we got more money. Now go kill the guy like we obviously had to. Zach doesn't seem to care about only getting 30 cents on the dollar because it was worth it to see such a cool fight for him. He's back in his hotel room now playing strip poker with all the other people who were betting on today's event, including the two old ladies. I'm going to have to call you on your bloomers, ma'am. Oh, damn it. Chivalry ain't dead in Texas. (laughs) Beekman's assistant sees Tony's men approaching their hotel room, and they move to jump off the balcony to run away. They find their path to the car blocked by Chola and the motorcycle gang, still waiting on the last 70 cents for each dollar he owes them. When Tony's men come running out of the hotel, Beekman and his assistant run for it, but Chola manages to wrestle a briefcase out of his hand before they go. The man asks Chola why he let them go empty-handed, and Chola points out that they have the keys to his car, so they're not totally empty-handed. And then he says, and why don't you check out what's in that briefcase? But when he opens it up, it's empty, and they all just start laughing because it's funny that there was nothing in it. What I really wanted to happen was for Chola to set this briefcase on the roof of the car, and when they open it, the rattlesnake from earlier is inside. (laughs) And then he gets bit in the face or some dumb shit. I don't know. (laughs) Like freaking Kill Bill. Yeah. Michael Madsen. Exactly. He had it in a briefcase too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, briefcase full of money. We cut to the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar across town where Glenn Campbell is singing Any Which Way You Can on stage. 
Just love me any which way you can. Philo invites Jack to California, but he doesn't seem interested. Orville says he might stay here in Wyoming with his nurse because he got shot in the shoulder. The next day, Philo stops at a red light and Chola and his men pull up, and they're still all in this stolen limousine. We got a little debt to settle. We do, huh? <laughs> 40 bucks! Then he pays him the money for having to rent the crane earlier. And now he's got some new Nazi friends. Yeah. Yay. Might say neo-Nazi friends. That's what, I was wondering why they didn't just embrace the shaved head look. It's It goes with their motif. I think they look much cooler the way they are. As much as I love how ridiculous Cholo specifically looks with his dumb wig on, I think I'm even more in love with his second-in-command, who is wearing, like, an Afro wig, but he was very upset that the pile of wigs didn't come with mustaches, so he's drawn this little John Waters pencil mustache, and it looks completely <laughs> fucking ridiculous, but it's wonderful, and he's making all these huge, goofy, smiley faces all the time. I just love him. As the limo drives away, we see three or four more bikers in the trunk holding a Philo Beto for President sign. Philo, Lynn, and Clyde are pulled over in the middle of the desert by a lone motorcycle cop. Oh, remember those guys who got sent to Death Valley? Yeah, why did we need this extra scene? He tells them that he's ticketing them for reckless driving and speeding and transporting an animal without certification of ownership or inoculation. He says that he's going to impound the vehicle and kennel the animal. And for no good reason, he's saying all of this into the passenger side window, which gives Lynn the opportunity for a last... Right turn, Clyde. Clyde punches the officer into the dirt, and Eastwood looks directly into camera for the film's final line. Onward. And then they drive away. That's the end of our film. It was directed by Buddy Van Horn. This was his directorial debut after a long career as a stunt coordinator and second unit director. He would go on to direct two more Eastwood films, Pink Cadillac and Dirty Harry sequel, The Deadpool. Just those two. Those are his only three films, this and those two. Deadpool certainly isn't the greatest. No, I never saw that one. He also plays Marshal Jim Duncan in High Plains Drifter and a stage driver in Pale Rider. His stunt coordinator credits include classics like Around the World in 80 Days, Spartacus, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Dirty Harry, Deer Hunter, Every Which Way But Loose, Heaven's Gate this year, Mm. Sandra Locke's Rat Boy in 86, Outbreak, The Net, and then almost exclusively Eastwood stuff from there. Writer Stanford Sherman wrote some episodes of The Man from Uncle and the Adam West Batman series. He also wrote The Man Who Wasn't There, Ice Pirates, and Crawl. Yeah. Characters by Jeremy Joe Kronzberg. Apparently, he has a soundtrack credit for the song Feels So Good to Win, which we heard earlier this year in Coast to Coast. Jeremy Joe Kronzberg wrote the first film, hence the character credit here, and later wrote and directed Going Ape, which stars Tony Danza, Jessica Walter, Danny DeVito, and according to IMDb, Manus, the orangutan from Every Which Way But Loose, who was too old to play Clyde here. In fact, according to IMDb, Manus is also in Cannonball Run 2 in 84, as well as this film is Clyde, uncredited, which I know is not the case. So this could all be made up by some speciesist who can't tell one orangutan from another. Clint Eastwood played Philo Beto. This is Clint Eastwood's second feature for the year after Bronco Billy, which also stars Sandra Locke and Jeffrey Lewis. We went over a big chunk of all their credits in that one, but suffice to say, Eastwood was in a bunch of westerns for TV and film. He's Dirty Harry. 
He has four Oscars for directing and for best picture. He doesn't seem to have a sense of humor, and he was kind of awful to Sandra Locke. Sandra Locke played Lynn Halsey-Taylor. Again, we covered her stuff earlier. She's in six movies together with Clint, her real-life partner at that time. She also wrote and directed Rat Boy in 86, which, if you didn't hear our Bronco Billy episode, you should check out that trailer. Jeffrey Lewis played Orville. Jeffrey Lewis is awesome. He's in even more movies with Clint than Sandra is. He's always funny. He was the father of Juliette Lewis, and our friend Eval Johnson directed his final feature film appearance as Len Harding in High and Outside. William Smith played Jack Wilson. He plays Strelnikov in Red Dawn, and he played a major in that Uncle Sam horror film. Harry Guardino played James Beekman. He's Bressler in the Dirty Harry films uh, Dirty Harry and The Enforcer. He's also Kiefer in Roller Coaster. Ruth Gordon played Ma. She's Maud of Harold and Maud. She's Mama in Where's Papa. She's Minnie Castavet in Rosemary's Baby. Mrs. Clover in Inside Daisy Clover. And we also had her as the grandmother character in My Bodyguard earlier this year, Martin Mull's mom. Michael Cavanaugh played Patrick Scarf. That's the assistant to uh, Mr. Beekman. I don't think he ever says his name in the whole movie. Yeah, I don't remember him But being apparently mentioned. it's Patrick Scarf is the name. He plays Dr. Malcolm Kyo in The Haunting. He plays a judge in Holes. He's the enforcer... He's in The Enforcer and The Gauntlet with Eastwood. He also played the sheriff on the 1991 reboot of Dark Shadows, a role played in the original series by Dana Elkar. And they appeared together in MacGyver episode Countdown, featuring Kavanaugh as Michael Donahue, a.k.a. The Viking, yeah. Mad Boat Bomber. Barry Corbin played Fat Zack. We just had him in Stir Crazy and before that in Urban Cowboy this year. He's also in No Country, War Games, Critters 2. We just went over this. Roy Jensen was moody. He played Mulva Hill in Chinatown from the director of our previous film. He was Donovan in Soylent Green. We had him earlier this year as Lee Mendenauer in Tom Horn and Blue in Foolin' Around. He'll be back next year for Demonoid and Bustin' Loose. Bill McKinney played Dallas. He played Mountain Man in Deliverance. He played Kern in First Blood, Terrell in The Outlaw Josie Wales, and we had him earlier this year in Carney as Marvin Dill and Bronco Billy as Lefty LeBeau, the draft-dodging marksman. William O'Connell played Elmo. He plays Sim Carstairs in Outlaw Josie Wales. He's Horace Tabor in Pate Your Wagon, and he was previously Elmo in the first installment of this franchise. John Quaid played Chola. He's Comanchero leader in Outlaw Josie Wales. He's a bartender in La Bamba. Chola in the first film, and we'll see him next as Morgan in Cattle Annie and Little Britches. Al Ruscio played Tony Pauli Sr. He was Leo Cuneo in Godfather Part 3, the police commissioner in The Phantom, and Mr. Carlman in Showgirls. Beans Morocco played the baggage man. This was his third film of the year after Stanley Dawowski, Polish customer in Used Cars, and the shaggy dog in Loose Shoes. He's also Harry in Once Bitten. Julie Brown played Candy. She's blinking your miss it role. She's barely in there but uh, she is in that last uh, strip poker scene. This was her first feature film appearance. She'll be back next year in The Incredible Shrinking Woman and Bloody Birthday. She's Chloe in Police Academy 2, Candy Pink in Earth Girls Are Easy, and Judy in Shakes the Clown. She was also a regular performer on the short-lived sketch comedy show The Edge with Jennifer Aniston, also starring Tom Kenny, Wayne Knight, Rick Overton, Alan Ruck, and Paul Feig.
She's also Mrs. Stoger in Clueless and the voice of Lisa, the popular Valley Girl character in a Goofy movie, as well as Minerva Mink on Animaniacs. Glenn Campbell played Glenn Campbell. He was LaBeouf in True Grit. His songs Rhinestone Cowboy and Southern Nights make memorable appearances in films like Guardians of the Galaxy and High School High. John Lovitz gets upset because they're scratching his pristine records. He also provides the voice of lead character Chanticleer, a.k.a. The King, in Don Bluth's Rockadoodle. Yeah. Reed Crookshanks played bald-headed trucker. He's gunsmith in High Plains Drifter. He's a prison guard in 48 Hours and a sergeant in Fletch. Michael Curie played the Wyoming officer who can't help but laugh at the bald motorcycle gang. He's Captain Donnelly. In a couple Dirty Harrys. He's Rafferty in Halloween 3, and we'll see him next in Dead and Buried next year. Dick Durock played Joe Casey. We had him already as the Jump Master in The Nude Bomb. And Gregory in Coast to Coast, the assistant to the Lady P.I., we'll see him next as Swamp Thing in Swamp Thing, 1982. Yes. He's also Bill Travers in Stand By Me. Michael Fairman played the CHP captain. He's Adlai Stevenson in 13 Days and Jason in Mulholland Drive. We last saw him as Harrison in The Kidnapping of the President. James Gammon played the bartender who didn't care about a monkey ruining his shit. He played Lou Brown in Major League. He was Esco Swanger in Cold Mountain and Marvin Loach in Iron Giant and Teddy Lee in The Cell. We've had him already this year as the Sorcerer Supreme, Stephen Strange in Urban Cowboy, also with Barry Corbin, and Connie Foxworth in It's My Turn. He's also in a couple 1980s titles like On the Nickel and Below the Belt, which we'll be reviewing on their 41st and 42nd anniversaries respectively, as we have officially put a lock on next year's schedule. Weston Gavin played Beekman's butler. I don't even remember a butler. He'll be back as a U.S. Army captain in the formula later this year, and he was also a mugger in Superman and an engineer in Rogue One. Lance Gordon played Biceps. He's Mars in The Hills Have Eyes a state trooper in Live and Let Die, a likely co-worker of J.W. Peppers, and a referee next year in Disney's Amy. Lynn Hollowell played Honey Bun. She was Angela in Body Heat and Misty in Going Berserk. Peter Hobbs was the motel clerk. He plays Dr. Brandon in The Man with Two Brains, General Sparks in The Andromeda Strain, and Dr. Dean in Sleeper. He was also Frank in Loving Couples, and we'll get him back shortly as a doctor in 9 to 5. Art LaFleur played the other baggage man. He was the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. No, he was the babe in the Sandlot. <laughs> uh, he was also a pharmacist slash Mr. Penny in The Blob. He's Captain Sears in Cobra. He's Chick Gandal in Field of Dreams and the Tooth Fairy in the Santa Claus movies. And we had him earlier this year as Thomas in Hollywood Nights. Ken Lerner played Tony Powley Jr. He was Delaney in RoboCop 2. He's an agent in Running Man, and he's currently Lou Schwartz on The Goldbergs. He was also Principal Flutie on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's also the brother of Michael Lerner. Is he? Yeah. I didn't even think to look that up. And because when I wait, pulled up money, because they look so much Michael alike. Michael Lerner or Lerner? The woman or the man? The man. <laughs> the man. The, the, the learned. Learned. Is the woman. learned. Yeah, Michael Lerner. Yeah, okay, thank you. Michael from, Lerner. Uh, 
Which movie Touched was that? Touched by Love. Touched by Love, <laughs> yeah. The Waltons. Because yeah. I brought up his picture and I was like, is that not Michael Lerner? It's not. It, it's a different person, but they are That's very funny. similar. John McKinney played Officer. He was Peter Watson in Meteor. Robin Mencken played Tall Woman. Which woman would be the tall woman? The one who was taller than the rest. Oh, yeah. I don't know that one. She's a cocktail waitress in High Anxiety. She's a party guest in Last Married Couple earlier this year. And she also co-wrote Teen Witch. Top that with Fade to Black writer-director <laughs> Vernon Zimmerman. George Murdoch played Sergeant Cooley. He was Bob Bugler in Orange County. And he's God in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Jack Murdoch played Little Melvin. He's Cress in Blue Thunder. Melvin? Yeah, Little Melvin. Everybody yeah. has a name in this movie. Yeah. Especially Patrick Scarf. <laughs> Definitely would have heard if he said Patrick at all. Jack Murdoch was Cress in Blue Thunder, Lou in Psycho 3, and John Mooney in Rain Man. We'll see him again soon as Hector Orteco in Altered States later this month. Uh, I uh, recognized him immediately just by his voice from a character that he plays on Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, okay. He, he's in one episode of, uh, uh, it's the episode, it's a two-parter called Time's Arrow, but he plays this guy who's like, claims he's a, he's like a homeless man begging for money, but he's got such a unique voice that it was really easy to, as soon as I heard this character yeah. speaking, I was like, oh, I know that guy from Star Trek. Interesting. Anne Nelson played Harriet. She was Gramu Sultanfuss in My Girl. I think that's the grandmother from My Girl. Uh, she's also the woman who hangs herself to get away from Stryker's boring stories in Airplane earlier this year, but still makes it back for Airplane 2 somehow. And she'll also be a party guest later this month in The Mirror Cracked. Sunshine Parker played Old Codger. He was Emmett in Roadhouse, a hobo in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Edgar Deems in Tremors. He was a gas station attendant in Heartbeat earlier this year and a railroad station derelict in Oh God Book 2. That's totally how I'm going to spend my retirement. Just grow my beard way out and play hobos and shit. It's going to be great. Anne Ramsey was Loretta Quince. She is the actual wife of her husband in this film. She appears alongside him in Scrooged as well for the homeless shelter scene. I like to think of this as a prequel to that film. Yeah. She's also the titular mama in Throw Mama from the Train, for which she was awarded an Oscar nomination, as well as Mama Fratelli in The Goonies. She also appeared earlier this year in The Black Marble, which we'll be reviewing next year. Logan Ramsey played Luther Quince. He's the actual husband of his wife from this film. He's John Witter in both of the original Walking Talls. He's Anne's husband in The Scrooge Shelter, and we just saw him as the police officer on the movie lot in the monkeys movie head but that wasn't for this show that was just for fun but he's the cop in the bathroom trying to arrest oh, michael okay bill sorrels played the bakersfield police officer we just saw him as nick carey one of the husbands in witches brew he's also klein in the howling next year and surfer cop in fletch as well as tamarkin in the 78 heaven can wait michael talbot played officer morgan that's the cop from the very beginning and very end of the film he played Balford in First Blood. He was the race car driver Mickey, who killed half of Jack Warden in used cars. He's also the cowboy in National Lampoon. And we also had him as uh, Gary Busey's buddy Clay in Foolin' Around. The guy who was spying on girls from Oh, yeah. I totally recognize him now that you say that. I was like, he looked familiar. 
Mark L. Taylor played the desk clerk at the Fancy Hotel. So far this year, he was a cult member in Serial and Spence in Raise the Titanic. He's also Jerry Manley in Arachnophobia, Dr. Niles in Inner Space, Don Forrester in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and he's currently providing the voice of Farmer McGinty in Disney's animated Rocketeer reboot. Uh, so uh, I wanted to bring up our editor. Oh, okay. Seems like uh, he's a Clint Eastwood regular. We got, uh, his name is uh, Ferris Webster. Got uh, Escape from Alcatraz, Bronco Billy from earlier this year, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Every Which Way But Loose, uh, The Magnificent Seven. Uh, he also did Forbidden Planet. Uh, but there was another editor listed, uh, Ron Spang. And uh, notably, his first editing credit is The Jerk, which I oh, thought was a nice credit. Uh, and then... It was a little bit downhill from there because his second credit... The Jerk 2. No. Not that far down there. Up the Academy Oof. <laughs> from earlier this year. They had an editor? <laughs> it had two, oh, actually. They strung out He their was dailies. a co-editor on that one. <laughs> Remember when those, when everything was breaking because of the bad singing? That was funny. No. Say it again. Say it again. Uh, yeah, that was all the credits I had. I think this movie is on par with the first one, but I don't think the first one's great. I think it would have been neat if the ape had more to do um, in the story. I, I feel like we watched the first one like a year or two ago because yeah. I had never seen it and I didn't really care for it. Yeah, the first one doesn't make a lot of sense either because the Lynn Halsey character keeps going back and forth from being a friend to a foe like yeah she needs help she doesn't need help she's been faking needing help she wants him to go away well and and he's got a, an entirely different occupation right? right well you know that's what's weird too is the, the it described him as a trucker turned fighter but at the beginning of the first movie he's already a fighter okay so i don't know well i feel like i liked this one better than that one yeah i i think that's probably true um you know i feel like it's it was just a little bit uh, more entertaining because it was just i don't know more goofy they definitely gave ruth gordon more to do yeah in this one which i appreciated and but i think they give jeffrey lewis less to do which is a, it's a, it's shot. a mistake <laughs> like the whole point of putting jeffrey lewis and clint eastwood in a movie together is that they play off each other really well and in both movies this year they've they've barely had any scenes together mm-hmm. yeah. which seems like a mistake to me yeah i mean that being said this one being better than the first still didn't make it great. Right. The The fight scenes are boring and they're the focus. And it's directed by a stunt guy. Yeah. You would have just thought it would be better than it was. And and I, I not, not that I'm like a prude or anything. It's just like the gratuitous like jokes about sex and having sex like to the point where there's like this comical scene where multiple couples including a couple who we don't even know as characters – are having sex and we're yeah. supposed to like it's like is i guess this is funny because everyone's having sex and then ma shows up and then she has sex and it's like i all the while like this is supposed to be about getting this guy to a fight and there's mobsters chasing them and yeah and, it loses we, its focus a we, lot we take this yeah. break to do this gag i guess after the monkey date rape scene i'm like i'm i'm i don't know i, I watch the rest of this movie well but. it's also weird because like <laughs> Basically, the whole premise of the film is that these people want him to do a fight, and then he doesn't want to do the fight, so they take his girlfriend to hold her hostage. So they steal the girlfriend back, and then they do the fight anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's still official. Yeah, it's dumb. So it's just like, why did why did you even bother risking your girlfriend? Why didn't you just do the fight? Yeah. Like you were already friends with the fighter. You knew he wasn't gonna punch you to death. Yeah. Because yep. you had a you had a a relationship. Yeah, there was no reason for the call off the fight and have that big, like, running down Main Street. Yeah. The the original reason to call off the fight was that you thought he was going to kill you in the ring. And then you go and fight with the guy in some barn where no one's watching, where he could kill you. And he doesn't have to call an ambulance right away for you because no one's watching. No one even knows the fight but is happening. they're happened. friends. They wouldn't happen. They just want to know yeah. who's better than each other because... I don't know. They have they could small penises. The same thing I don't know. In a ring <laughs> where they were getting paid to do it. But now he's missed out on $25,000 because he's an idiot. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even get the money now because he tried not to fight for them. Yeah. That's the end of the film. It's, uh, I would say, is this a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I it's think a, it's a thumbs down for me. It's, I think it's barely a thumbs down. This is just right under the line of what I'm willing to recommend someone bother to check out. Uh, it's a down for me. I, uh, I only have vague memories of the original, but I don't remember it having anything that was like, wow, that was like a really great Clint Eastwood film. Uh, Honestly, I, the first time I watched, and I watched them both probably in the, in the same sitting, the first time I ever watched these movies, I think my takeaway- two of these in a row? Yeah. And <laughs> when I was uh, working at Blockbuster, we got five free rentals a week. <laughs> and I would just rent things like in alphabetical order or in franchise order. And so I just sat down and watched them. It was it was when I was doing my movie I haven't seen every day. Um, but my biggest takeaway was how much I love Jeffrey Lewis and how funny he is mm-hmm. and his great comic timing. And he just has these great faces. And it's funny because Clint Eastwood was supposed to be the fighter in this movie. And he already looks like somebody's grandpa in this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got this weird shape to his body. But... Jeffrey Lewis could beat the shit out of anybody in this movie. Like he looks like he could take on this Jack Wilson character. He's just got these massive guns, uh, but he's just too nice to fight people, I guess. Yeah. But either way, um, not great. Uh, Letterbox, do we have some ideas, Chess? Yeah, it's um, it's near uh, another film we mentioned today. Uh, I have it just above Smokey and the Bandit Two. They're that- they're basically the same movie. Yeah. I have it. It's it, that puts it at ninety five, and it is below my bodyguard. All right, Richard. Uh, I also have it just above Smoking and the Bandit too, because I felt that they belong together. I I would put that above this, but you put Smoky above. Yeah, Smoky two above this, ah. just because like there were cool stunts in that movie, and I actually think Burt Reynolds is way more charismatic than Clint Eastwood. But now I'm worried that on my list I have Smokey way below. Was there some reason I hated Smokey and the Bandit? <laughs> it was well, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I have I have it I have it at 81, which is above Smokey and just below fooling around. Mm. I have it way above Smokey on my list, even though right now I'm thinking <laughs> if you gave me these two, I'd rather watch Smokey too. That's why we need to rearrange these lists. But uh, I put it just above Bronco Billy because I feel like every Clint Eastwood movie for a while yeah. is going to be the exact same thing yeah. over again. And uh, I would just barely rather watch this than that. That's funny. Yeah, I originally put it by Bronco Billy, but I have Bronco Billy way higher. And then I started slowly moving it down. You know like, no, no, no. It's no. Oh, wait, no, no. It's worse than no. It's I'm actually, I'm going to move it down one. So okay. it's, it's in 89th place. It's just under Bronco Billy and it's above Herbie Goes Bananas. Yeah. 
I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Hawk the Slayer which IMDb describes like so. With the aid of his companions, a man seeks to defeat his evil brother who has taken a nun hostage. We leave you now with the trailer for Hawk the Slayer. Enough! Enough! Two blood brothers out for each other. You have found the power which is rightly mine. How? Firstborn brother, they called him Voltan. Enter, Dark One. The devil's agent, the servant of evil. Kill him! The secondborn brother, they called him Hawk. He had one secret weapon the ancient power of the Sword of Mind and he was out for revenge. Last thing you will ever see is the woman you love. In my arm. I am ready. Two brothers, two armies, two forces of good and evil. Voltan's army, the Devil's Army, and Hawks. A dwarf. A giant. An elfin bowman. A witch. And Hawk. Together, they took on the mighty Voltan. Together, they took on the Devil's Agent. Two blood brothers, with only blood between them. Beyond the edge of darkness, there is a world of sword and sorcery.